This is Nick Wright with Managing Editor Zachary Fillingham of geopoliticalmonitor.com. And today we're going to be talking about U.S.-Iran tensions. Now, there's an article up on the website entitled U.S. Tensions, Saudi Sabotage Rattles Oil Markets on the main page of geopoliticalmonitor.com. So, Zach, uh, give us a bit of a background about this U.S.-Iran standoff and what the driving tensions are behind it. Okay, so recently um, it's become clear that the U.S.-Iranian relationship is is reaching new lows, if that's possible. Um, There have been a series of escalations and tensions between the two countries. Most of these have been driven by moves from the um, United States. Uh, The U.S. is the active party. Mostly Iran is reactive. Um, Primarily, the most recent ones have been uh, the U.S. sending new military assets to the Persian Gulf. Uh, It sent a Patriot missile defense system. Um, It sent the USS Arlington and a variety of amphibious landing craft. Uh, It sent the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier. And as we know, it already has a considerable uh, amount of military assets within the Persian Gulf based uh, in Bahrain. Um, So... It's been the Washington has been sending um, military new military to the region. We never really got a clear reason why, but there was speculation of that there was some kind of threat made uh, that the U.S. intelligence com- uh, community picked up on a threat to U.S. troops based in Iraq. As we know, those uh, there are, there are about six thousand troops left in Iraq, and Iraq is home to Iraq, like many other countries in the Middle East, are home to an Iranian proxy in the form of uh, the Popular Mobilization Forces, which are Shiite militias, sort of paramilitary units that operate in Iraq. They were um, instrumental in driving Islamic State out of the country. And although not all of them are connected to uh, Iran, some some of them are even Sunni, um, there are elements of the mobilization forces that are uh, linked to the Quds Force. So... Um, You have that. You have a series of ramping up of military by the United States. This, uh, as we are now about a year away from um, the U.S. unilaterally pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, And around the start of the month, President Trump announced that there would there would no longer be any extensions for um, countries that continue to import Iranian oil. The so so that means Basically, that impacts countries like India, Turkey, South Korea, uh, and China, all of which uh, continue to import various amounts of Iranian oil. China is really the China is the only one that's that's sending single signals that it will continue to do so. All the other ones are in, in various uh, stages of of ramping down their imports, um, and so basically broadly. Uh, we're seeing a resumption of maximum pressure strategy, uh, something that resembles what the Obama administration did in the lead up to its own negotiating uh, phase uh, that led into the Iran nuclear deal. You're trying to isolate Iran, trying to, uh, primarily economically. Um, obviously we're seeing it not doing, not doing a great job diplomatically because there's still a lot of the international community that uh, is still on board with the original nuclear deal. But uh, the U.S. goal here, um, one presumes, would be to precipitate some sort of popular uh, uprising against the regime in Iran. Um, 
something something that resembles the the, the green movement in the early uh, in the early years of the Obama administration, where you had mass protests that were vi- eventually violently suppressed, um, and, or simply to negotiate a new nuclear deal that that carries the Trump administration's branding and um, is much better than, you know, what President Trump said of the Obama deal, which was, I think, something like the worst deal ever in the history of deals. So. uh, And what about the sabotage incidents that happened over the weekend? Uh, Can you elaborate on those a little bit and their impact? Okay, so um, this is all unconfirmed, so it's a little bit of speculation. But uh, if we presume that, uh, as we see, the U.S. is ramping up its military presence in the Persian Gulf, we can presume that these two incidents um, may well be a response from the Iranian side. And obviously, as they are two asymmetric powers in terms of conventional firepower, the United States is obviously much more powerful in a military sense than Iran is. Um, this would be uh, an example of Iran um, exacting a cost from U.S. foreign policy um, in sort of oblique ways ways that cannot be uh, countered easily. So one of these incidents took place uh, near the Strait of Hormuz, uh, which is at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. Basically, 40% of all energy uh, energy exports travel through it. Um, it it's uh, including Saudi Arabia via the Persian Gulf. Um, it's, it's basically a choke point uh, and choke point off the coast of Iran in the past, most recently, a month ago, we've had Iranian military figures who have threatened to close off the strait, um, saying something like, if, if our oil can't travel through it, other countries' oil won't be able to travel through it. Um, so uh, this case specifically happened over the weekend. There were four oil tankers that were sabotaged and suffered, quote unquote, significant damage in the uh, words of Saudi officials. Um, Two of them were Saudi, one of them was Norwegian, and another one was uh, the United Arab Emirates. And the UAE, obviously another huge uh, enemy of, Iran- of the Iranian regime. Um, we're still at the, at the time of recording. We don't, like, there are no definitive appraisals of what caused the damage, but some early speculation is that uh, it was caused by a bomb. Uh, these ships were docked off the coast of uh, Fujairah, uh, the UAE port. Um, and so I, I guess predictably, U.S. officials are pointing the finger at Iran um, as being behind it. So so when we look at this first case, this case of sabotage, oil, like um, sabotaging oil tankers in the Strait of Hormuz, um, it is basically, you know, you have all these oblique references from Iranian officials, like, we are going to close the strait without closing the strait, which is basically like, um, the Iranian Navy is such that you wouldn't be able to actually blockade it. It would probably invite a conventional counterattack from U.S. forces. But but given the the geographic choke point that you have all of these, um, all of these vessels passing through, there are options available uh, to the Iranian regime in terms of uh, basically sabotaging um, enemy oil vessels or enemy tankers. So that was the first one. The second one happened a few days later. um, uh, I think it was yesterday. So 
Um, it was a drone attack on a pumping station in eastern province of Saudi Arabia. Um, and as a result of that attack, the East-West Pipeline, which is about 1,200 kilometers and spans from eastern province in the east to the Red Sea port of Yambu in the west, which is an alternative export route um, that can circumvent having to go through the Strait of Hormuz, that pipeline was shut down and is currently shut down to assess the damage from this attack. So we've actually had a claim from the Yemen-based Houthi rebels, who, as we know, are an ally of Tehran, another uh, off-sited proxy of the Iranian regime, um, uh, which is currently engaged in a civil war in Yemen against a coalition backed by Saudi Arabia. They claimed responsibility for an attack in Saudi Arabia, but not specifically this attack. Uh, so we don't know exactly, but it, it you know, that also fits the bill of, of Iran using proxies to, again, exact a cost for this U.S. foreign policy. Um, and I think it's important to note that the attack took place in Eastern Province, which is a portion of Saudi Arabia that actually has a large Shiite uh, community or population. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this is a region of Saudi Arabia that has seen sort of different levels of civil unrest, sometimes nonviolent, sometimes violent since the, the 70s. And as recently as May 11th, um, we saw eight militants killed in a firefight in um, Katif uh, in, a, in a sort of open firefight with Saudi security forces. So, so I mean, you might have some sort of connection there um, where this civil disobedience, uh, this long-standing civil disobedience, could could um, result in these kinds of acts of sabotage. So we've seen uh, a military escalation by the United States. Instances of sabotage where there's uncertainty as to what the cause was from. Uh, what's the likelihood of this escalating into uh, some sort of a, a military incident or war? Um, I think that, uh, you know, if everything goes according to plan, I don't think either side wants a war. Um, so if everything goes according to plan, um, a war will be avoided. Uh, there's a lot of posturing going on. Um, you know, obviously the, the dispatch of these military assets to the region is, is posturing. Um, well, actually, at least it appears to be posturing. Uh, the New York Times ran an article this morning that, that basically revealed that the Pentagon had renewed its war planning uh, with, with regards to an invasion of Iran. So, you know, so it basically drew up a plan um, that outlined an invasion force of 120,000 U.S. troops, uh, which is pretty much the size of the Iraq invasion. And, and in another echo to back then, um, this kind of like uh, war plan was drawn up and released in the lead up to the Iraq invasion back in 2003. So, you know, there's a lot of posturing going on. I think the, the, the acts of sabotage, if we presume they are um, uh, directed by Iran, like that's, that's the sort of conflict we're going to see, this sort of, um, you know, it's almost like a, a form of guerrilla warfare and uh, unconventional war where 
Iran's trying to just just try to extract a cost for this maximum pressure policy, and the front line is going to be um, the war, or sorry, the front line of this conflict is going to be the oil market because, uh, you know, basically when when opposing regimes design their own policy to counter U.S. pressure. Um, they're well aware of the political dynamics of the, the U.S. system, right? And here, the price of oil is extremely important um, because that price of oil, that price of the pumps in the United States, so long as nothing really happens, so long as there's no volatility, no spike, um, there's going to be less popular pressure in the United States to adjust the course. Um, but but should there be disruptions in the oil market, there will quickly be blowback within U.S. politics for President Trump to um, basically abandon maximum pressure. So um, I think that when we're talking about the possibility of a war, if everything goes according to plan, we're going to see these kind of limited exchanges um, potentially all over the region. I mean, like, there are, Iran has proxies in several countries um, where it where it could hurt the U.S. and U.S. allies, you know, has proxies in Syria, Lebanon, and prob- arguably most importantly, importantly, Iraq as well, um, which in a geopolitical sense, Iraq went from a Sunni-dominated country uh, by the authoritarian Saddam Hussein to a Shiite regime. Um, obviously, Iraq is also a majority Shiite country. So, so that's the geopolitical legacy of, of, of past U.S. foreign policy, right? That regime change basically created a close ally for Iran. And now U.S. forces in Iraq will continue to be um, hypothetically at risk so long as, you know, this sort of state of tension exists. Um, so that having, that having been said, whenever you have these kinds of military assets in close proximity and you have this sort of um, cascading um, vitriol from both sides, uh, you're going to run the risk of something happening. Um, especially, you know, like, for example, it, it doesn't always, we always assume that some sort of incident, military incident is, is by design, you know, like that the Iranian regime would, you know, pick up the phone, the leader of Iran, the Ayatollah picks up the phone, or the head of the IRGC. But it doesn't necessarily always work like that. You also sometimes you have like insubordination or mistakes happen that create um, a very localized exchange of fire. But once that localized exchange of fire takes place, it's very hard for le- that's when the leaders on both sides get involved, and it can be very hard for them to diffuse the tension once you get to that point. So if, if you have this kind of like jingoistic saber rattling going on on both sides, something happens, um, and then like you have this sort of ramping up on both sides, then you potentially could end at war. And that's that's the risk we're running here. And then obviously that would that would, you know, uh, that would be a big problem for a lot of reasons, all the way from humanitarian to oil markets to a lot. 
So Zach, does this represent uh, the end of an era in the sense that the Iran nuclear deal now is truly dead? Um, well, I don't know. I think it's it's hard to say. I mean, it is under the Trump administration. I think that has been clear from the start. I mean, the Iran the the nuclear deal was uh, was singled out for you know the Trump campaigns. Uh, anger from the from the get-go uh it became kind of emblematic of obama era foreign policy um there was there seemed to be some sort of uh personal grudge that president trump had towards the iran nuclear deal and basically at first chance he pulled out of it and um you know what we're seeing now like i mentioned before i think i think the move is the move here is to try to like, okay, so this boils down to the question, what do you think Trump is trying to achieve here, okay? So, does he want regime change and possible war, or war leading to regime change, or does he want a new nuclear deal? If he wants regime change, it's kind of... Uh, it's curious, right? Because you have an isolationist, an ostensibly isolationist U.S. leader who is um, who cashed in on this popular distaste for U.S. adventurism in Iraq and Afghanistan and basically has has said time and time again that it's time for the U.S. to get out of these countries and that they're stupid wars and that they're pointless wars, right? And then how do you square that politically with invading Iran. It just absolutely doesn't make sense. And from a military standpoint, um, Iran's a tougher task than either of those uh, Afghanistan or Iraq was. You have a uh, basically a, a better materially, like qualitatively, better conventional military in Iran. So it'd be a, harder to sort of bulldoze in theory. Um, and you have a regime that has tentacles throughout the region that can create all sorts of chaos um, throughout the Middle East, which obviously is still very important for the health of the global economy because, you know, Saudi Arabia, the largest, one of the largest exporters in the world, is there. Um, and, and any sort of region-wide uh, conflagration is go obviously going to impact Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Arabian oil industry. So it's hard to imagine that 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 is the goal here. But on the other hand, um, the points that the, the the Trump administration is 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 pushing for its own deal, some of them kind of make sense. Um, some of them are like um, trying to, well, I mean, I would say in my personal opinion, the one that makes the most sense is to remove the time limits from it. Uh, the, the, Ob the Obama deal had time limits, 2030, most of them set to expire. The presumption, the original presumption was that you would renegotiate a new deal, but still technically going by the letter of the law of that deal, once they expire, then that's it. You know, there are no limits on the um, Iranian nuclear program. Uh, <clears throat> and another one is the ballistic missile program, which I guess is technically feasible, um, maybe in, in, your, <laughs> in your wildest dreams of U.S. policy wonks. Um, but then there are other ones that are just like, um, 
very hard to imagine would ever happen, like for like dismantling Hezbollah. Um, when you look at a regime, you know, I think some things like this, they occasionally betray a sort of lack of uh, just a very human understanding of how politics works, right? A lack of being able to empathize your opponent and put your head, get yourself into their headspace. Because when you don't have a democratic government, right, that government, it gets its legitimacy from somewhere. And um, without that source of legitimacy, you look at China, right now its source of legitimacy is economic prowess, is a nationalist revival, right? Like vis-a-vis -vis its colonial past. Uh, if you don't have that legitimacy, that, that government will fall. And the government itself is well aware of that. So if you have a revolutionary Islamic government and you're basically asking it to dismantle its revolutionary framework, um, you know, it's just not going to happen. Like, so you can disagree with Hezbollah and the exporting of, of Islamic revolution all you want, but it's just, you know, you should be aware that when you advance those, like when you advance that as your 12 demands of Mike Pompeo, um, you're just not going to get them. So in that sense, to bring it back, on one hand, you have, it's hard to believe that, that the Trump administration is seriously considering war, the presence of John Bolton aside. Uh, on the other hand, they're advancing negotiating points that don't really make sense to to resume negotiations of, of a new nuclear deal. Maybe those points are just their, their opening negotiating stance and that they're going to come down from them. But, um, you know, as it stands now, it's a little bit of a contradiction. Um, and it's just another thing. I think that another interesting question here is, like, what does all this mean for the future of non-proliferation? You know, like the Iran nuclear deal is dead for now. Whether or not it rises from the ashes, who knows? But what does this all mean for the future of non-proliferation? Um, I don't think it's very positive. I don't think it's a... I don't feel confident <laughs> about the future of non-proliferation in the sense that... You know, like we've always been moving with every passing year, this technology becomes more achievable, right? As, as countries sort of move uh, along in their developmental progress. Um, so even back in the 60s under JFK, the writing was on the wall that it's going to become very, very hard to make countries um, voluntarily... Uh, voluntarily decide to not develop nuclear weapons. And then what, what we see right now in the, the stark, stark contrast between North Korea and Iran, like th <laughs> it, it, it's not a positive example for the future because you have two instances of maximum pressure going on, right? And basically the country with the weapon is obviously way, way, way better, way better off than the country without the weapon. So what's the lesson here? Get the weapon. <laughs> so anyway, I digress. I apologize. So uh, in closing, Zach, what does this mean for the oil markets in the, the short term, but also in longer term uh, thinking as we uh, move away from these initial incidences and into uh, what could be a new framework for our relations with Iran? Um, well, I think, okay, so the plan from the start 
for the Trump administration was to to marginalize Iran, to remove it from nuclear uh, from oil markets, but um, to replace its supply elsewhere so that there were no major price disrupt disruptions. Um, so that's you know difficult to do at the best of times, um, and it is very dependent right now on things going smoothly elsewhere in the oil producing world. We're seeing that that's not happening. Um, producers like Venezuela and Angola, OPEC producers, they continue to shed production. Um, the Libya war is flaring up, as we, we discussed in another podcast. And Libya represents about 1.1 uh, million barrels per, per day. Who knows uh, whether the ongoing uh, flare-up in that civil war is going to cut production at certain airfields, certain export terminals. Um, Saudi Arabia also hasn't been as, as forthcoming probably as Washington hoped in terms of, of uh, opening the pumps. It has been a bit conservative in its own output. And um, I think that, as I alluded to earlier, the fact that oil is going to be the kind of front line for this this phase of U.S.-Iran tensions, where you're going to see attempts uh, by the Iranian regime to extract exact a cost in terms of oil price. So we're going to see we're probably going to see more t more instances of targeted sabotage uh, meant to um, shake investor confidence uh, in the oil market and and produce produce volatility. Like that will be the intention. So in that sense, I think that this is this is all very consequential for oil markets. And I think that, you know, um, a lot of people forget just how a just how important this region is for global energy markets and b just how quickly um, things can the situation can deteriorate. Um, and we might be seeing right now, so obviously all this is the supply side of the equation, right? The, the potential for supply disruptions. Um, and right now the effects might not be um, uh, manifesting so much in terms of pricing because on the demand side, we're seeing the U.S. Uh, flare up just last week in, um, actually, yeah, yeah, this week, in the U.S.-China trade war, which, you know, um, re-imposition re of tariffs on both sides of that trade war, which suggests to people that this will be going on for much longer, which has um, run-on effects in, in global growth projections and, and future, um, you know, the future of global trade. So that kind of adjustment is driving oil prices down. Almost, one might even argue, almost by design. <laughs> but, you know, so basically, long story short, for now, um, that, is, that is offsetting the impact of, of, uh, of tensions in the Persian Gulf, but that might not always be the case. And, um, you know, when, when the situation becomes volatile, it'll happen very quickly. And, and the, um, the fluctuations could be very steep. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Zach, for your thoughts and analysis on U.S. air tensions. A reminder to our listeners that you can check out the article uh, on the website at geopoliticalmonitor.com entitled U.S. Iran tensions, Saudi sabotage rattles oil markets. Uh, so uh, thanks to everyone for listening and looking forward to next time. Talk to you then.